Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. I had a lot of amazing times. Um, mm -hmm. One brilliant experience I had was when we were promoting Uncharted 3. Welcome to Game Dev Advice the Game Developers Podcast, your place for resources and in-depth conversations with other game development professionals. I'm your host, John J.P. Podlasic. I've worked at 10 different game companies, starting back in 1989 with the TurboGrafx-16. Over the decades, I've developed games like Mortal Kombat, Avengers Initiative, Beavis and Butthead, and numerous others. I now work for a startup called Level X. But this podcast isn't about me. It's about you and the game development community. So if you have questions or ideas, give a call 224-484-7733 or go to the gamedevadvice.com website. So let's kick things off with the new Game Dev Advice. Richard Lamarchin is an associate professor in the USC Games program where he teaches game design, development, and production and is working on a series of experimental virtual reality game design research projects as part of their innovation lab. Previously, he was a lead game designer at Naughty Dog and led the design of all three PS3 games in the Uncharted series, including Uncharted 2 Among Thieves, which won numerous awards. He also worked on JAX 3 and JAX X Combat Racing and helped to create the game series Gek Pandemonium and Soul Reaver at Crystal Dynamics. He's also the author of a new book, A Playful Production Process for Game Designers and Everyone, just published by the MIT Press and released in October of 2021. Check it out. Hey, so where are you calling in from tonight, Richard? Hello, JP. I am calling in from Southern California, from the city of Los Angeles. So tell me about your current role as a design instructor and author. Well, right. Yeah. So my formal job title, I'm an associate professor in the USC Games program um, at hmm. the University of Southern California. Uh, we're one of the oldest uh, games programs in North America, uh, yeah. consistently highly ranked as well, I'm happy to say. And yeah. Um, yeah, the fact that I'm an associate professor, that means I'm kind of a middle rank professor. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I teach uh, game design, game development, and game production and project management um, to students at every level from undergrad to PhD. Cool. Um, and I'm very lucky as part of my role at USC, I also get to do research, which can mean a lot of things for creative practitioners like me mm -hmm. and the folks that I work alongside. And my position is actually in the USC School of Cinematic Arts, which is the second oldest film mm -hmm. school in the world. Yeah, uh, famous. They, right, yeah, yeah. And they had the presence of mind way back in the day to set up this games program. Mm -hmm. At the same time, 
the games program is also being set up in the Viterbi School of Engineering, um, where, mm-hmm. you know, that's the uh, computer science part of our program. Right. And I think this is a real strength of our program that, you know, we have people who are uh, highly technical, you know, uh, gaining computer science degrees with a specialization in games mm-hmm. uh, alongside the folks in the, in the interactive media and games division of the School of Cinematic Arts who are naturally, you know, kind of focused on matters aesthetic and design related. And yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a really great situation you know the program is actually even bigger than those two schools we have collaborations with the Thornton School of Music and the Mm. School of Education yeah uh, the business school uh, and so yeah we're a big tent and I think it's just that diversity you know is a real strength of ours it's fantastic yeah I'm I'm very familiar with that program and uh Oh great! I, I think great. I think Gordon is over there, right? Gordon Bellamy. Yeah, yeah, my good friend Gordon Bellamy. I actually yeah. have taught alongside Gordon quite a few times. Yeah. Uh, I really love Gordon. He's such a visionary. He mm-hmm. really, I learned so much from teaching alongside him. He really knows how to draw the best out of students. For mm-hmm. those of for those of our listeners who don't know, Gordon Bellamy is a, a longtime, um, well-known video game executive. Yeah. Uh, you know, known for the the Madden series for EA. Uh, I think his title was like executive director or CEO yeah. of the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences and the International Game Developers Association. Right. That's and how I know. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. 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 We're very lucky that we, uh, that we get to teach alongside him now. It's very cool. Author is also in your title. So tell me right. a little bit about that. Well, yeah, no, I'm a newly minted author as of 13 days ago. um, (laughs) My my first book, uh, which is called A Playful Production Process for Game Designers and Everyone, um, was released by the MIT Press. I'm incredibly honored to say I'm still pinching myself. I don't know how I managed to, you know, uh, get a book published by the MIT Press. The MIT Press have published some of my favorite books about, um, you know, games and and game culture down the years. So, yeah, I'm still kind of reading from it it's been a it's been a great ride no that's a great background and 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 a lot of different stuff you've got going on so like how did you get started in the video game industry well right yeah so i mean before you know my current Doctor Who-like incarnation as a a professor of games. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked in the mainstream of the game industry for like a little over 20 years. Um, And to answer your question, I got started back in the UK, which is where I grew up, as you can probably tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the first company I worked for was Microprose. Ironically, you mm. know, uh, at the time, a big American company. Yeah, yeah. Um, Simulations, you know, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, known for the their um, flight sims. Um, uh, and also, of course, their... Formula um, One? Their, okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? You know that that game oh, was God. actually. Yeah, I love that game. Uh, yeah, I used to play uh, every, everyone that came out. Uh, his it was Mike Crammon. Uh, it was Jeff 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 Crammon. Yeah, uh, who was a well known three D game developer. He made a game called The Sentinel back in like the late eighties, which was an early extremely cool three D strategy game about hmm. line of sight. Okay. Um, but yeah, for, uh, Formula One. Um, yeah. But of course, um, you know, Microprose were also known um, for games like uh, Railroad Tycoon and mm-hmm. Civilization. Um, Sid. Meyer was one of the founders of the company. And um, yeah, they had um, a branch in the UK that was uh, initially doing ports of the PC games that they were making in America to the various kinds of 
uh, other home computer formats that were particularly popular in in Europe uh, okay. and at the time. You know, this was machines like the Amiga and the Atari yeah. ST. Okay. And the, the, the UK studio did so well that they started giving them original titles. Hmm. And because the system architecture of the uh, Sega Genesis was so close to that of the hmm. Amiga, mm-hmm. um, it was natural that when they were thinking about opening up console development in the early 90s that they would sort of situate that in the UK office and that meant the UK office had to grow that mm-hmm. meant that they put a, a, an advert in the just the local newspaper the Gloucester Citizen which okay. one day my mum brought to me as I was <laughs> glumly sitting on the couch I'd been I'd, I'd graduated like about a year before okay I had wanted to work in game development I couldn't see any opportunities to do it until yeah, always listen to your mum. My mum <laughs> put this in front of me and encouraged me to do it. And at first I was a little resistant, yeah. um, but she was like, Richard, what have you got to you lose? Send in your resume, write a nice cover letter. Yeah. And so I did. And the moral of the story is always listen to your mum. Uh, (laughs) and and thank god for newspapers right back when you yeah right right? yeah exactly and just for the serendipity of the universe you know yeah sometimes the thing that you really want and need just drops into your lap when you're least expecting it i do think that um you know you have to kind of you can prime the field by getting prepared and Mm -hmm. uh, i think one of the things that helped me get my first job in the industry was that while I was living at home, kind of in the doldrums after graduating, just doing boring temp office work to yeah. keep myself sane, I'd taken a creative writing course um, at the local library. Cool. And um, I think it was that, the fact that I'd written a bunch of short fiction in that year that just helped the the folks at Microprose to sell me on the idea ah. that not only was I technical because my, my degree is in physics and philosophy, uh, so I was a mathsy kind of person, but I think that, mm-hmm. and I brought in drawings that I'd done as well. I'd, I'd, I'd sketched up some drawings of a couple of, you know, when I look back, pretty simple game concepts. Yeah. But I think that, yeah, if you just like put some good energy into what you're doing, it can help get you ready so that when that opportunity comes along, you're a little more prepared to seize it. That's great advice. And um, so, you know, thinking back on all this, like, what do you wish you had known when you started your design career and your design path? I mean, yeah, that is a good question. And there's a lot, of course, that I wish I had known. You know, I wish maybe mm-hmm. I'd studied storytelling a little bit more. I think I would have been even fur- further ahead. Um, maybe I, you know, would have known a little more about cinematography or, or something like that. Maybe mm-hmm. I would have known more about um, psychology. I've always been interested in psychology and I see an understanding of psychology as one of the key skills of the game designer right you know understanding people understanding players motivations stuff like that exactly just like you know i know this is an area of interest for one of your former guests uh jason uh vanderberg Mm um uh, i've learned a lot from him actually about psychology through his talks and stuff but um i think and so i'm gonna start talking about my book i'm afraid yeah yeah kind of (laughs) tell me about the book right for sure Uh, well it's it, you know it's kind of inevitable since it's so much on my mind right now since it's the culmination of in one sense is the culmination of two and a half years work but really this book is the culmination of the 30 years work that I've done since I entered the game industry yeah and I think the thing that I really wish I'd known right from the beginning of my um, uh, career is just how to manage a project mm-hmm. I think you know, I'm sure you've heard this saying many times, JP. I'm sure you've said it yourself. Making games is hard. It's like 
the hardest thing that I know of yeah. to do. Yeah. Yeah. A game project, there's so many moving parts. There's so much to discover as you're going along. Finding fun, them, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah find, finding the fun, figuring mm -hmm. out like what kind of uh, composition you need on your team in order to get everything done. Yeah. You very often don't really work out how to... Uh, well, first of all, what kind of game you're making, and then secondly, how to build that kind of game. Yeah. Very often, don't figure that out until like two thirds of the way through the project. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and then on top of that, of course, I think making a game is very different from making a piece of linear media, whether that is a writing a novel or um, uh, you know making a, a movie, yeah. um, because of the interactivity. Mm -hmm. And be because of all of the uncertainty that that introduces uh, into the overall process, like the the player brings so much stuff with them into the, the into the game that shapes the experience and, and determines how it goes. And that's, I think, the real magic of our form as as game designers. But it also brings all of this complication with it in terms of design problems and even bugs and uh, you know yeah. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, this is. Um, one of the key things that I wish I'd known, and it kind of goes hand in hand with the other thing that I wish I'd known, which is that crunch is really bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know you know this, Jake, yeah, because I heard yeah. you talk about it before yeah. on the on the podcast. I yep. think that, you know, a bit like the metaphorical frog in the pot of boiling water, mm -hmm. over the course of my career, I kind of got lowered into the world of crunch. Yeah. And my first crunch was relatively short and we pushed through it and then my second crunch was a bit longer and a bit worse and then those patterns just deepen of course over the course of your career yeah. until they really test your limits and i was really brought low um on a project in the early 2000s hmm. um actually one of my favorite games that uh that i worked on um a game called soul reaver 2 um, part of the legacy of, of Kane series. Um, ah, okay. uh, you know, this was the series where I worked for the first time with my dear friend, Amy Hennig, the famous game director and writer, known now for the Uncharted series, but ah. also known for the, for the Soul Reaver series. Mm -hmm. And Soul Reaver 2 was a rough, hard crunch. We'd come Ooh. right off Soul Reaver 1, where we'd also worked extremely hard. And, you know, it was the first time when I clearly went through um, a kind of mental health crisis where I just suddenly mm. found myself full on depressed uh, mm. to the point where I had to take uh, some time off work and try and, you know, get my way back to a better frame of mind. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think this is something that I wish I'd understood more clearly that mm. while I thought I was being strong and could tough it out through the hard spots. Yeah. And I still believe something of my mindset back then, which is that if you're trying to make something truly excellent, then there's going to be some harder work involved at some stage. Mm -hmm. yeah. But what I didn't understand was just how easily hard work can get out of control and become the yeah. kind of uncontrolled overwork that for me characterizes crunch. I think there's a big difference between healthy hard work and unhealthy crunch. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, uh, you know, as you, you can tell where I'm going with this, like there's a relationship between knowing how to manage a game project so that you don't run out of time at the end, so that you don't have to crunch. Right. And, um, you know, in the words of Sinead Bryant, who's a, a game producer I, I look up to uh, tremendously, um, so that we can have sustainable game development.
Yeah, yeah. instead of burnout and, and people dropping yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So the so, book, uh, yeah, this... the, book, the book gives uh, strategies and, and ideas for how to avoid crunch and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. So the book the book is actually um, on one hand it's a professional manual that draws together all of the things that I learned. Uh, firsthand for myself through my own experience, but also that I learned through all of the excellent people that I work with mm -hmm. and whose GDC talks I, I went to. Um, it's kind of a collection of best practices for making sure that the project stays under your control, or at least as under your control as it can be because as we all know like a creative project uh is a is a bucking bronco right it's yeah, gonna go yeah, yeah. this way and that you don't know exactly where it's going to lead you but there are things that you can do to make sure that you hold on to the saddle and mm -hmm. don't get kicked off if yeah. you'll forgive me for extending the metaphor yeah, yeah. um and then it's also, um, the book is also a, a textbook. It's actually, <laughs> my strategy in writing the book was um, given to me by my friend Tracy Fullerton, who, uh, when I was talking to Tracy, who is one of the founders of the USC Games program, okay. uh, a famous game designer of excellent art games, uh, like Walden, a game, and The Night Journey, and uh, mm. an amazing author in her own right. She's the author of Game Design Workshop, which is, you know, the um, the sort of de facto standard undergraduate textbook for uh, starting to learn about game development. Okay. Tracy said, well, you know, if it's, I know it's your first book, you kind of want to set, I, I think I had said, I want to set myself an easier challenge. I want to, you know, set an attainable challenge for my first book. And Tracy said, well, you should just write the textbook of your own class. Uh, and so that's what I did. Um, I've been cool. teaching this, this class on average once every semester um, for the whole time I've been at USC, both at the undergrad and the graduate level. Wow. And it's, what we call our intermediate design and production class. Mm -hmm. So it's the class that becomes that comes after the beginner level and okay. gets you ready for the advanced level. Mm -hmm. And in this class, you know, there's a lot of focus on game design and the kinds of design activities that we need to do at each stage of the process. And then there's also it's to do with marrying game design with game production or project management. So mm -hmm. that, you know, we, again, make the right decisions at the right time. We make the right kind of documents that we need to make so that we can plan the project. Doing just yeah. enough work to have a good plan that we need to go forwards, but not doing too much work right, right. Uh, so that we devise a load of details that are later going to get changed. Yeah. And all of that stuff has, yeah, ended up in the in the book. And I'm really mm. delighted um, by the kind of reception it's been getting, I, I got yeah. to say. It's been very affirming. No, that's that's very cool, and, and yeah, the, the back in the day there was always you know the GDD right, and it had to be like mm -hmm. two hundred mm -hmm. and three hundred pages, and it was just, right. it was just <laughs> so so obnoxious that uh, it, it was yeah. too tedious to ever reference, right? So like, did, did you ever write point. one of those, JP? I, I did. I worked in a Beavis and Butthead game, and I I, oh, dude. I wrote the. G JDD or the GDD for uh, uh -huh. Wiener Takes All, uh, uh, You Don't Know oh, Jack oh, Ripoff. Uh -huh. And um, yeah, it was, uh -huh. you know, for as simple the game it was, it was pretty big. But yeah, I, I remember being handed like 300 page GDDs. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, it's just like, um, what are you meant to do with that? What do you thing, do with right? that? Like... So, so then you just <laughs> ask the person and it's just kind of ignored, kind of like a, a massive Microsoft yep. project schedule that's this giant. Right interweb of interconnected craziness yeah, that yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. ever adjust because the whole thing blows up so then people yeah. don't pay attention to it so the industry's right. evolved because you know that's that stuff is just 
doesn't work. You know? Yeah, it's I think crazy. happily people learned a long time ago that that stuff doesn't work. I wrote a few of those myself, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you had this experience where you would print it out a bunch of times, yeah, right. and you get this kind of telephone directory thick wedge of paper, right. and you'd like give it to say the lead programmer, and yeah. he'd take it in both hands, and he'd look at it, and he'd look at you, and he'd say thanks. And then he set it to one side. Never opened it again. Or she would (laughs) set it to one side. And you come back a week later and it would be in exactly the same place (laughs) on their desk. And um, yeah, so actually this is one of the big, things in the book i um uh at naughty dog one of my uh, main mentors and my now my dear friend um, is mark cerny who mm-hmm. is really well known these days of course as kind of the, the the chief architect of the playstation 4 and the playstation 5 cool. but mark's career goes back you know um in a really long interesting arc he's worked with sony um okay. a lot over the course of the last two or three decades wow. it, it was mark who kind of um uh, shepherded Jason Rubin and Andy Gavin ah, uh, okay. when they were much younger developers, the, you know, the founders of Naughty Dog through the creation of the Crash Bandicoot games. And mm-hmm. he's worked a bunch with Insomniac. And, you know, Mark's a hands-on game developer. I mean, he, with a tiny team, made the game Marble Madness, the classic. Oh, yeah, uh, I remember that. MC Escher meets mini golf game, mm-hmm. uh, the coin op back in the in the day. Yeah. And so Mark um, has this famous talk that he gave at the Dice Conference, you know, the executive mm-hmm. games conference back in 2002, where he laid out this thing called method, which is um, the approach to game development that, that Mark and our friend uh, Michael John, MJ, kind of observed and kind of developed uh, mm-hmm. as a good approach to making games, formalized as method. And one of the key things in this is getting rid of that big game design document right. and replacing it with a thing called a game design macro, um, which <laughs> is a super short document. It's like a few pages that summarize the gameplay and then a spreadsheet um, that uh, lays out the major beats of the game in terms of both gameplay and story, if the game has a story. Mm. And this game design macro like, is used here and there in the industry, but it's mm. really still, even in 2021, it's not well understood, not well documented. So I have like a couple of chapters in my book devoted to cool. what it is, where it comes from, how it works, and how to write one. Uh, and I have a, a template on the website. And I'm really hoping that this is going to help spread the word about this kind of better approach to game design documents mm-hmm. that really works instead of leaving yeah. something that no one ever reads. Right, the 300 pager. Yeah. Cool. That's great stuff. Like we talked about Microprose. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the places you've worked at uh, after that? Yeah, so I shipped a couple of games at Microprose, and then I got brain-drained over to the United States. I actually (laughs) saw another ad in the back of Edge magazine. I'm sure you know. Yeah, uh, I remember that. uh, Yeah, right. Edge, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was this company called Crystal Dynamics. uh, Ah, CD. In Palo Alto uh, in Northern California. Mm -hmm. And I'd already traveled a little bit in the States, and I'd fallen in love with uh, um, San Francisco Bay area yeah so i eagerly sent in my um my resume for this job and the next thing i knew they were flying me out to palo alto this was in 19 uh right in the mid 90s when Mm. the um the internet was just starting to become a thing is that tomb raider Uh, was out yet or not yet 
No, no, no. This is late, way, way was late before 90s. Tomb Raider. Yeah, the first one was late 90s, but yeah, okay. Yeah, this is actually um, right in the middle of uh, the 90s. Crystal was formed with the intention of making games on the CD-ROM format. That's why it's called Crystal Dynamics, actually, ah. for, C- for CD. <laughs> you know, this new storage format that was going to give us vastly expanded storage. Right. And it was founded by executives both from the Bay Area game industry uh, and also from Southern California, from Hollywood, because the idea was that with this expanded storage capacity, we could bring together the best of technology and and game design Mm -hmm. uh, with the sort of the high standards of of storytelling and performance um, that the entertainment industry could could bring to the the game industry. Um, And um, I worked on the very first Gex game, uh, hmm. On the 3DO version of Gex, actually, because ah, initially yeah. it, you probably remember 3DO, yeah, yeah. The, like 3DO was the first CD-ROM based Trip game Hawkins, system. yeah, right. Uh, right, exactly, yeah, founded by by Trip Hawkins, and pretty quickly when the 3DO didn't succeed, um, Crystal pivoted to um, a Sony PlayStation and Sega Saturn. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was just a really wild ride, as you can imagine, yeah. being you know working through the. Um, mid to the late 90s uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, in Palo Alto, you know, the official capital of of Silicon Valley with all of these things, uh, you know, kind of exploding around us, technological, social, cultural change. The dance music scene was really amazing in that time. Mm -hmm. The art scene was really amazing with loads of interactive art breaking out all over. I went to Burning Man twice uh, (laughs) in that that time. Um, And I just had... An amazing time at Crystal. Um, I worked, so like I said, I worked on the first uh, Gex game. Mm-hmm. And then I worked on a, a couple of projects that kind of got stuck in uh, development hell. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I worked on uh, Gex Enter the Gecko, which was the first uh, 3D character action game that I that I worked on. Mm-hmm. I still have a really soft spot for Gex Enter the Gecko. The lead game designer of that game was actually Evan Wells, who's now one of the co-presidents of Naughty Dog. Mm. Um, and there were a bunch of us around that time, uh, including Bruce Straley, who was okay. the lead artist, I want to say, on Gex Enter the Gecko, who went on to become the game director of Uncharted 2 and of uh, The Last of Us. Oh. Uh, after Gex Enter the Gecko, um, that was when I was invited on to this project called Soul Reaver by Amy Hennig. Mm-hmm. Um, Amy and I had joined Crystal within about six months of each other. Okay. And um, yeah, and then that was the beginning of another excellent, probably like six or seven year sequence of work where we worked on three Soul Reaver games. The last one wasn't called Soul Reaver. It was Legacy of Kane Defiance, but it was okay. really Soul Reaver 3 in spirit. And it was an immensely satisfying experience. Finally, I was working on uh, a game project that had the kind of standards of storytelling and performance that I'd been hoping for for video games for all these years. Mm-hmm. It was amazing working as a lead or a senior designer to Amy's game director. And just those teams were incredible. I'm still in touch with many of the folks from those days. Um, And yeah, they were very special creative times. And they kind of prepped us for what would come next because Amy and I then left Crystal Dynamics within about six months of each other and went to work at Naughty Dog. Ah, Um, Amy was game directing uh, Jack 3, the third game in the Jack and Daxter series. Yeah, yeah. And I went onto that project just to help finish it. Mm-hmm. And then while Amy and a skeleton crew of other folks 
went off to begin work on the game that would become Uncharted. I was the lead game designer on Jack X Combat Racing, which was yeah. a tremendously... Do you remember that Yeah, yeah, game? I totally remember that, yeah. yeah. It was really satisfying to work on. It was... Uh, I'd never worked on a racing game before, let alone mm-hmm. a combat racing game, and it was also the first online multiplayer game that I'd ever worked on. Mm. Um, and I got to sit in on the Uncharted meetings as well, and yeah, cool. and then, you know, the rest is is history. I think those are... The Uncharted games are the games that... Amy and Bruce and Neil Druckmann and Evan Wells and the rest of the talented crew we're, that we're best known for. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I, and I had an amazing time working on Uncharted. It's just, yeah, life-defining experience. Yeah, no, that, that, that's fantastic body of work. So what kind of advice would you give uh, designers working in the industry right now? Like, Yeah, this is a really good question. I mean, I think when when considering what kind of advice to give to a designer in the industry today, Mm. first of all, I I always like to reflect on the fact that we talk about the game industry as if it was one big monolithic thing. But I think a really interesting and exciting aspect of the game industry is that in actual fact, it's like at least a dozen different industries that are all kind of networked and interconnected. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like the uh, AAA industry and the indie part of the industry. I think the PC game part of the industry somewhat has its own distinct identity. There's Mm -hmm. the mobile game industry. you know, which of course is like huge now. That's at least half the industry when measured in terms of uh, monetization. Right. Uh, and I'm really fascinated by all of the other things that are sort of satellites around those. I'm really mm-hmm. into art games. I've always been fascinated by contemporary art. I've always loved theater. I've always loved um, performance art and participatory art where the people going to the gallery kind of become part of the artwork. Mm-hmm. And so the sort of the arty end of the world of, of indie games and also, you know, art artists, contemporary artists who use uh, video games as their sort of chosen form where a painter paints and some artists use games right. to ex- express themselves. Um, and, you know, luckily things like escape rooms. Mm-hmm. I, th- I see as connected to the game industry. So, uh, and, and um, uh, you know, experience design, um, immersive design, mm-hmm. the Imagineers who, who create Disneyland, I think they're connected uh, to our world as well. Yeah. Certainly a lot of our students uh, end up working in immersive design. So when thinking about what kind of advice to give people, it's quite a tricky question. Yeah. But I do think that because, th- so if one of the key skills of the game designer and by extension, the more generalized experience designer is psychology. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that we can always go back to. You know, whether we are reading a sort of pop psychology book, you know, I've recently been looking at a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Ah, um, Malcolm, what's uh, his name, right? Is he- uh, actually, it's it's uh, Daniel uh, Kahneman. Yeah, okay, um, okay. Yeah, and this is about the two parts of our mind, the part that reacts very quickly, even kind of more quickly than um, our conscious minds can recognize Mm -hmm. the reactive part of our mind um, that very often makes good decisions for us, Mm -hmm. um, that saves us a bunch of time, sometimes saves our lives, but very often can mislead us, miscue us because of all of its inbuilt biases that are part of the shortcuts that it takes to process the world. Mm -hmm. And then there's the slow part of our mind. And this is the part of our mind that we sort of associate with our, what you might call our higher consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. Our, um, our existence. 
executive function at the front of our brains, um, where we're more wise and considered and and far thinking. So right. I think that you know reading about that kind of stuff is really good for game designers. Of course, you can get really serious about it and hit the real academic texts uh, and to learn more about uh, about psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think psychology is one of the two key skills for the game designer. I think the other one is an understanding of systems dynamics. And this is something that I knew a little bit about while I was in the industry and which I've learned a lot more about since I've been an academic. Um, Formally, systems dynamics comes out of the world of cybernetics, uh, which unfortunately is nothing to do with humanoids with like one red glowing eye terminator style you know cybernetics is uh, was a theory of information exchange uh, developed by this guy called norbert wiener in the middle of the 20th century and which turned into a thing um i think largely at mit interestingly yeah i've heard Um, yeah yeah and it was this new academic discipline that was kind of like a new science it was it was intended to try and explain everything from the ecosphere, to the international stock market, to geopolitics, which, you know, in the 50s and 60s, when this was kicking off, was really important because of the Cold Cold War War, and the nuclear arms race, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone was trying to work out what the systems of the world were so that we didn't blow the world up, uh, you know, in terms of politics and society. And yeah, uh, there's a really uh, great book that I love by um, Donella H. Meadows, who was one of the key academics associated with systems dynamics. And it's called Thinking in Systems, a Primer. And in this book, Dana Meadows draws our attention to the fact that systems are made up of feedback loops. Mm-hmm. And of course, as soon as I mentioned feedback loops, every game designer's ears in the room are like prick up yeah, because right, exactly. our games are full <laughs> of those, right? You know, the, the reinforcing feedback loops that make us get stronger and stronger and stronger as we level up uh-huh. and the balancing feedback loops that make it so that enemies um, match our rising level of power in the game mm-hmm. so that we can keep providing challenge, keep our players in that flow channel where we're balancing their mastery against the challenge we provide them so they don't get either bored or frustrated. And there's loads more to learn about complex systems, dynamics. I think, you know, um, the MDA paper, Mechanics, Dynamics, Aesthetics, okay. um, published, you know, uh, back in the day by uh, Robin Haneke and, and Mark LeBlanc and Robert Zubek, they talk specifically about the, the way that the dynamics emerge from the mechanics of the game and create these aesthetic experiences for players. And all kinds of weird stuff happens mm. in the dynamics part in the middle. But gradually, I think game designers, are beginning to figure out, um, although it's hard to develop general language for that stuff because the exact details of it depend very much on the exact details of the kind of game you're you're trying to make. Yeah. So I, this is a long-winded way of saying I reckon psychology and systems dynamics are really good things for anyone in any game design field to uh, uh, to know about. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I think you know just having interests that are that give you a T-shaped skill set. You know, yeah. this is the capital T with the with the crossbar that is the, your wide interests. So that I think it's good for game designers to know a little about a lot of different stuff mm-hmm. because you never know when some random bit of knowledge is going to feed directly into the design of the game that you're working on. Totally. But the upright of the T is like your deep interests in something like a specific genre of games. Mm-hmm. I think that something that helped my career was that I decided early on that I wanted to focus on uh, storytelling, character action games. Mm-hmm. Character action games, that's the 
terminology used at um, Sony for games like Uncharted right. or uh, Infamous or Ratchet and Clank, you know, third person mm-hmm. character action games. And I think that served me really well because it meant that year on year I was building a skill set and a vocabulary and a whole craft um, which I could reuse from project to project to project. Yeah. And I do think that like craft is something that partly just because everything has been so new for so long, it's been a little difficult for us to gain deep craft in specific areas. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's hindered our accumulation of deep knowledge about craft in the game industry has actually been crunch because yeah, the, Tur- prob- turnover, the problem of crunch right? I mean, has led exactly JP to turnover in the industry to people leaving the industry after mm-hmm. a short amount of time yeah. and taking all that hard won knowledge with them. It's a brain but, drain, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think we're beginning to to get there now, and I think you know there are plenty of game making artisans who are developing very deep uh, skill sets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like the uh, the T shaped analogy because you know you you have to do both, right? You can't be a jack of all, mm-hmm. master of none, but at the same time. You can't just right. be so niche of a niche of a niche of a niche that anything outside of that is, you know, foreign to you. So, yeah, that, yeah, that's, a, yeah. that's a great metaphor. Um, Especially in an industry that's changing so much. Yeah, exactly. Time, right. Yeah. You just think about the last five or ten years, how much stuff's changed. I mean, mobile wasn't even a blip, you know, really ten-ish years ago. Yeah, so right. What's your advice about, you know, developing interpersonal skills, you know, EQ, soft skills, stuff like that? Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked me about this because um, I became aware right at the very start of my career that knowing about game design, getting game design and having good game design ideas was only a part of the story. Um, You know, the more senior I became and the more people I was in charge of, the more it came home to me that I needed these uh, soft skills, the interpersonal skills to uh, be able to get things done, mm-hmm. but also, you know, to be able to make sure that everyone was being respected and having a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, this is, there's a, um, quite a lot of stuff in my book about this, just because there's quite a lot of stuff in my classes about this. Good. You know, I, I, I seize every opportunity to teach the basic skills that I was taught at Crystal Dynamics. I had a, a two or three of those kind of management training um, workshops hmm. at Crystal Dynamics. It's pretty advanced, um, right? For back then, and they were thinking about that. I'm, I'm impressed, you know? Yeah. It was never usually the course. It's like, if you're good at this thing, just do the thing. We're not going to even think about that kind of stuff. Right. No, I think you're absolutely right. It was kind of a, a marker of that progressive Bay Area culture that they were like, oh, yeah, we could, you know, give people these trainings. <laughs> to be honest, it could also be that yeah. we weren't always very good at it. And they were like, oh, Lord. We have to help these people <laughs> get along with each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in one of these workshops, I was taught that you know that you can level up your communication skills overnight just by remembering to be clear and to be brief in what you're saying, not, mm. not going on too long, yeah, yeah. and then um, active listening. You know, actually paying attention to what other people are saying um, mm-hmm. because. You know, it's a truism that like listening is half the battle in in communication. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of stuff. You know, there's some simple stuff like that in the book. There's some more complex uh, stuff. Right. Uh, and I do think, yeah, like you're alluding to, it's like it's key for game designers to work on their soft skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, the good news is is that no matter what kind of person we are, I'm quite a 
gregarious, extroverted person. Mm. Although I'm not completely extroverted, I'm also something of an introvert, and I need to I need quiet time to recharge my batteries later. Yeah. But I think even for the most introverted among us, there are just concrete skills that we can learn in order to work well with others, to be able to uh, collaborate well. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, my friend Akash Thakar, who's an award-winning composer for games, has a good story that he tells um, about how shy he was as a, as a younger person mm-hmm. and the kind of things that he did, taking, um, I think, seminars and stuff to help build his confidence. Toastmasters and or something? Or, yeah. I think it might have been a Toastmasters that he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, please go to patreon.com backslash game dev advice. We'd love to see if you can support the show and help uh, new episodes keep coming out. That's patreon.com backslash game dev advice. Thanks. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. And now Akash is a hugely successful game industry personality uh, on uh, TikTok and uh, Instagram and and Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I do think these skills are learnable. I do think that there's a potential problem lying in wait for us here, because um, when we think about like deliberately leveling up, our communication skills, our soft skills, say, in terms, uh, in the pursuit of like making better games and running our teams better, mm-hmm. I think we can be in danger of cultivating empathy in pursuit of a goal. Um, uh, and right. that's called instrumentalization. That's when you're mm-hmm. using something maybe inappropriately to get something else. Right. And it could e- easily Instead of for the up, sake of empathy, it's, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. It could easily end up being manipulative, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you, if you don't bring a certain kind of pure attitude to this kind of stuff, people pick up on the fact that it's manipulative right. and then it won't even have the result that you intend right mm-hmm. so i think it is good to try and cultivate genuine empathy yeah. for others rather than just you know learning some tricks but right. but then again we're all different you know and neurodivergent people ex- have a different kind of experience mm-hmm. of empathy so this is not a simple subject right what i would i would always say about this you know whatever works for you um and whatever works for your team we're all in this together we're all different we should respect each other's differences um recognize each other's differences help each other through uh, stuff like this mm-hmm. but i'm really glad you asked me the question jp because i think it's a really interesting one yeah no and, and that's cool that you've got it covered in the book too um for people to dive into what's been one or two of your favorite games or projects to work on yeah so like my favorite project uh, this is always a pretty easy question for me to answer (laughs) because i think without a shadow of a doubt uncharted 2 among thieves okay uh is not only the best game that i ever worked on Mm -hmm. but it was also my my favorite to work on cool 
you know, game developers often say that sequels are frequently better than the first game in the series, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the reason for that is it goes back to what we were saying earlier. There's just so much to discover. Um, right. And I I like Uncharted Drake's Fortune. I think we did a, a decent job. It didn't match up to our own hopes and dreams for it. Um, but what it did do was prepare us to hit the ground running with Uncharted 2. Yeah. And there was just something about that project where all the stars were aligned. Mm -hmm. You know, we had kind of the perfect team, a lot of people who'd been working together for a really long time at Naughty Dog, and a lot of people who were who were like me, you know, relatively fresh to the studio joining the studio as fans of the studio motivated to work well together yeah we'd figured out a bunch of issues in our game engine we'd figured out mm -hmm. a bunch of issues in the design of a game like uncharted right you had a, we you, made you had a backlog some, of ideas too right because you're like ah oh, we couldn't get that in for the original but now we can do this for the sequel we did actually yeah it's funny you should say that because i have um a video that i show in class uh which we call our green light video it was we kind of messed things up um mm. in the early stages of making the first uncharted game and we had a big reset um which presented us from making a proper vertical slice um so okay. instead we stitched together this movie from uh, a bunch of like technical demos we'd done and the thing that would have been our vertical slice and some previs as well okay and when i show this to my students to kind of show them what you can do when you don't have time to make a, a proper vertical slice it's really interesting to call out the ideas in that green light movie for uncharted one mm. that actually didn't show up in the series until Uncharted 2 or Uncharted 3. And I always tell people, you know, we talk about following the tradition of authors. We talk about killing your darlings, right? <laughs> uh, getting rid of some of your favorite ideas just because they don't belong in this project. But mm -hmm. you never actually kill a darling. You kind of slip it into your back pocket for yeah, potential yeah. use on a later project. And um, yep. so, yeah, we, we had a, a, a great long laundry list of stuff we, we wanted to do. And, um, yeah, there was just something about it. It came together really well. And it was a, a big, big success. It was mm -hmm. Naughty Dog's most successful game to date. Um, and uh, I think for a number of reasons, partly because we'd finally delivered on something that many of us have been dreaming about for a long time, which was a kind of on-the-button playable version of those kinds of big 80s blockbuster action adventure movies mm -hmm. that we'd all grown up loving yeah. but also in terms of the quality of the storytelling the script the performances our amazing actors uh, Gordon Hunt our director of actors uh, who worked with Amy and the rest of the crew to draw those incredible performances out of Nolan North and Emily Rose and the rest of our incredible cast mm -hmm. and yeah it's just one of those perfect storms yeah and you're right too like having worked in some games you know, sometimes that first one, there's just so many technical hurdles, right? You're just like, why is the engine not doing this? And we can't yeah, get this yeah. to work. And, and and you're running out of time so that, mm -hmm. you know, it sets the table for that next one. And when you have the people around and they know how to work together, and then you have right. more time to work on the design and, and ideas, and some right. of those technical hurdles have been solved, then you yeah, can yeah. really, you know, hit your stride and make that game that really takes off. Yeah. And some of it is kind of in the gaps between all of that stuff. Like the sort of the, the like we were talking about the craft. I definitely, mm -hmm. I, I show the game design macro for Uncharted 1 side by side with Uncharted 2, 
in my classes. And you can really see the massive leap forward that we made. The macro for Uncharted 1 has these big blocks of hard-to-read text in it and not very many columns. Okay. And the macro for Uncharted 2 has much shorter bits of text and loads more columns where we're like planning out the schedule of introduction of the abilities mm -hmm. uh, and the weapons and the enemies and stuff and more clearly hitting the major gameplay and, and narrative beats. And yeah, it's exactly as you say, JP, we were just figuring out how to do things mm -hmm. a lot better. Yeah, that's cool. So what are you curious about uh, right now in the industry? So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, that fascinates me in the industry right now. Um, uh, of course, VR was blowing up just as I joined USC. Mm -hmm. And I've been lucky as part of my research practice. As a professor, I've made a couple of, uh, of VR games. Uh, oh, one cool. of them with my, my colleague, Marty Campos, who was a student at the time. We made this game called The Meadow, uh, which was a little bit like a bit of Disney Imagineering meets a VR experience, hmm. where the physical design part in the real world kind of primed you for the little short musical VR experience we made. Cool. Um, and then more recently, I made another game called Phenomenology. In both of these games, I was very lucky they got into Indicade. Phenomenology was the most pretentious name that I <laughs> could possibly think of for a virtual reality game right. um uh, and it's a kind of tribute to the light and space artists um the most famous of which is huh. james terrell these were artists who were interested in the phenomena of um experience of visual and spatial experience and uh yeah people cool. can um find out more about that uh online uh if they like and so um, there are loads of other things I'm interested in. Those projects kind of led me in a, more of an interest in experience design, immersive design. Mm -hmm. um, we've got some cool, exciting stuff actually coming uh, down the pipe with new degree programs around immersive design uh, in the USC mm -hmm. Games program. But I think like the one thing that I'm most excited and curious about right now in the game industry is to do with narrative game design. Okay. You know, I think definitely in the last 10 years, there's just been an incredible renaissance in um, storytelling and narrative design yep. and the complex boundary between those two things uh, in the world of, of uh, digital games, but also, you know, in, in physical games, board games and card games as well. Yeah. I think that, you know, figuring out how to involve players in the unfolding of the story is really interesting. I think we have a lot to learn from the world of indie tabletop role-playing games. Mm -hmm. I have a copy of... Um, Kids with bikes uh, back here uh, that hmm. I'm getting stuck into, which is a really lightweight uh, indie tabletop RPG. Uh, you know, uh, co where the where the the, the group of players co-authors the story with a with a DM. Um, ah, okay, that sounds cool. Uh, yeah, that, I think that kind of stuff is really fun. And then, of course, you know, whether it's like Kentucky Route Zero or uh, Firewatch, I just think that hmm. there are people really showing a way forwards for storytelling video games that don't involve violence as a core mechanic. Mm, right. um, and I don't want to make a hypocrite of myself because, of course, you know, there's yep. plenty of uh, shooting and punching in the Uncharted games. Right. And I play a lot of games with violence as a core mechanic. Mm -hmm. But I'm just pressingly, urgently interested in, you know, what kind of, uh, what games would look like um, if they didn't have violence as a core mechanic, how would that would impact the storytelling, how that would impact the right. emotional emotional space of the game, how it would impact our understanding of protagonists in video games 
if they didn't go first of all to solve problems using violence you know right. i think to the, fall back on that right the, yeah yeah maybe yeah right yeah yeah maybe if it was a most def- desperate option rather than you know a first choice to kill all the enemies in the room mm-hmm. what about potential threats uh to the industry what concerns you what well, not to be a um, um, you know like a scratch record, but I do think that the biggest existential threat to the game industry and to game developers is crunch. Um, yep. You know, uncontrolled overwork. It just burns people out. It leads to these the high turnover, yeah. short careers that, mm-hmm. that we were talking about earlier. Um, it can destroy teams and studios. You know, crunch is really threatening to the bottom line of mm-hmm. development studios and publishers alike. Yeah. Because you pour all this money into something uh, only to see all that money go up in smoke when the team explodes because right. of the stress of crunch it's so, short-sighted right it's, it's very short-sighted yeah, yeah right yeah exactly so this is why i think that um have a um lots of different good reasons to get on top of it i, I think we've both been in industry a while and, and we're seeing it evolve right it's getting better there's still pla- plenty of room to go right like we're we're, <laughs> right. we're, we're not there yet but mm-hmm. considering back you know back in the day it was just a given it was just expected right like you yeah, know and yeah, i was yeah. even, i was a part of that right that was just that's that's how i learned and that's how i was mentored right but it's it's not right you lose yeah. people i think that is just so many better ways of doing it did you see jp the young horses uh the developers of bug snacks and octodad yeah, yeah. recently announced so they were going to a four-day work week i, I i've heard a little bit about that i, I know that some ex uh depaul folks that made that oh. and there was a guy nick yeah yeah Man, what was his name? Nick Esparzo or Nick? Um, he was an intern at Wide Load, but yeah, that was a group that um, they're very forward thinking about different things. And um, I've started to hear grumblings about and ideas around the um, the four day work week. So that's interesting that they've embraced that and taken it on. Yeah, it's um, uh, something that I'm super interested in. I'm friends with Phil uh, Tibetowski, uh, who's the president and CEO, and. Mm-hmm. I was just blown away when they announced it. You know, I've been reading up about the nature of work just in public life more broadly. Yeah. I think partly because I'm a game designer and like given my druthers, I would spend yeah. just my whole life playing. I definitely <laughs> I think there's a spiritual component to play. I'll take it that far straight away, right okay. out the gate. I think that our lives are enriched by play i think that we gain connection with other people through play. oh yeah totally and of course there's a bunch of literature around this whether it's like the work of bernie de coven who is a sort of um a dearly departed uh, friend of our program uh, mm. who writes about this aspect of play in games in his book the well-played game there's a book i really like by uh, actually a scholar of re- religious literature called james Cass, mm. who wrote this book called finite and infinite games that i gave a, a talk about at gdc a few years ago and he's barking up the same tree okay. you know he says that yeah games forge connection and lead to sort of deep enriching uh experiences uh and so you know when looking at the world of work where five days a week we have to go and do something maybe that we don't enjoy i've been thinking for a long time about how could we make that better mm-hmm. the the you know the idea of a four-day work week is a very old one in terms of uh, studies in public policy about you know alternative modes of of working but yeah. of course it's something that's been embraced at various times in times of economic difficulty where you know governments are trying to 
share wealth more equitably among a, a population because mm-hmm. you know if their weeks are shorter there's potentially more jobs and it's really interesting hearing the young horses talk about how even in the short amount of time they've been trying it they are just as efficient just as productive mm-hmm. as they were before i learned from my friend robin hanneke that who is um uh, of course an amazing game designer and um entrepreneur who founded the studio phenomena and robin's also an educator robin was the producer on that game company's journey oh yeah yeah that, that came uh, from me. yeah i've heard of them and yeah yeah who are alumni of the usc games program of course and back then robin told me about her observation you know that there's just so much wasted time in in the week Um, Mm -hmm. we get distracted so easily by things we get drawn into meetings that aren't really relevant to us yeah um and and in actual fact you know most people if they work an eight-hour day they're probably only productive for about four and a half hours so it definitely seems like we have an opportunity to you know rethink the situations that we're working in and to get more out of our working lives and more out of life which informs our working lives right we're artists yeah so we draw on our lives to make the games uh that we make and um yeah so yeah it's, it's a cycle stuff. right you know they yeah the personal right. life it's, a, in. it's a positive feedback loop like we were just talking right. about there you go right there's <laughs> yeah. perfect analogy right there so what's a, a funny or odd story from working in the industry and I'm, I'm sure you've got a treasure trove so what are you comfortable <laughs> well, I'm, sharing you know it's- i'm afraid i'm not very good at uh, funny stories of course i've saw and heard a lot of weird stuff in my time in the game industry right i had a lot of amazing times um mm-hmm. one brilliant experience i had was when we were promoting uncharted 3 it was actually just before uncharted 3 was shipped I had the opportunity to fly to London okay. um, with Mr. Nolan North, who, hmm. of course, is the incredible actor who plays right. Nathan Drake in the Uncharted games. And they flew us over first class on Virgin Atlantic. Uh, it was the first and probably the last time that I've ever flown first class. <laughs> and I'm quite sure that it was just because Nolan was with me that we yeah, got yeah. flown first class. <laughs> um, and we just had this magical week. Um, you know, wow. we did a bunch of promotion for the game. We went to a big famous uh, expo in London. Uh, Nolan's wife, Jill, flew over. Mm-hmm. And we ended up one Sunday morning bicycling through Hyde Park. stopping off at the statue of Peter Pan that's there. Mm -hmm. Um, And we even saw the prime minister taking his (laughs) breakfast by the serpentine. (laughs) (laughs) So it was just one of those surreal moments, you know, to um, be uh, moseying around. I'm from the West of England. I'm from a tiny town in the West of England, but uh, many, many of my college friends and industry friends live in London. And I love London dearly. I've been going there since I was like 10 years old, Mm -hmm. completely in love with London. So yeah, it was just very much, a kind of a peak experience one one more like uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not exactly a funny story but like an anecdote for uncharted trivia completists okay. there's um in drake's journal which is like drake's notebook that you know is a game mechanic in yeah. um in the uncharted games uh drake takes uh, a trip to turkey in the course of uncharted 2 in fact that's where the game almost opens where he's infiltrating a, a museum and like the tickets and the receipts in drake's journal 
are actually um, versions of scans of my tickets that I had gotten uh, when I had visited Turkey uh, at the end of the first Uncharted game. I took an amazing trip to Turkey, spent some time in Istanbul, cool. went to Cappadocia in the in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm I always <laughs> like to have a flick through Jake, Drake's journal to see that. Stuff. All right, I see that. Yeah, it's mine. It came from my yeah, stuff. That's me. <laughs> that's me. That's me. Shout out to Shadi Safadi who did the Photoshop work. Ah, there you go. It was very cool. So what games are you uh, playing right now that you're excited about? Like, Yeah, well, I mean, like most game designers, I'm always playing a bunch of like different stuff. Ten games One at g- a time, right? Let me, yeah. Uh, yeah, typically, yeah. And I wish I finished more of them than mm-hmm. I do. But, you know, I do finish, like, enough games to make myself honest. I think that's kind of a T-shaped skill set. You know, you play a lot yeah, of different yeah. games. Right. You finish a few of them. Right. One game I wanted to give a shout-out to was a game that, I played a bunch in the early summer. Uh, actually, my student, Charlie Anderson, put me on to. I finally, having heard a bunch about it down the years, played Subnautica. Huh. I don't know if you've played this. No, show. no, I have not. I have not. Tell me about it. Yeah, so cool. Subnautica is this amazing game. It's on console and PC. And it's kind of like uh, underwater Minecraft-like hmm. with really amazing AAA quality graphics. Um, the premise for the game is that you mm. have been traveling on a interstellar generational liner, I think in like cryosleep, and there's something bad wow. has happened to the spaceship, mm-hmm. um, which has crash landed on this water world, a world which is entirely sea with a few very tiny islands scattered widely on it. Okay. And you crash land in your escape pod, which has like just two very, very basic tools in it. And you have to swim around underwater, mm. gathering up resources and using them like in the 3D printer in the escape pod to okay. build successively more complex tools and resources. And eventually you end up building whole huge subaquatic bases. Huh. It's an amazing game, like the sort of the, the tech tree of the game, the systems of the unfolding relationships between the resources and the tools, yeah. the, um, the underwater ecology of like the plants and the animals uh, that live underwater. Um, The very interesting mechanics about how deep you can go. And having Ah, done a bit of scuba diving in the long, excellent summer I had in between Naughty Dog and joining USC, Mm -hmm. um, I'm really interested in the idea that the atmospheric pressure doubles uh, or uh, increases by an atmosphere for every rather 10 meters you go down. Okay. Um, so you don't have to go down very far before you're subject to immense pressure. And that affects like building underwater bases and their structural integrity. So the whole game is really hmm. well thought through. And then I was fascinated to learn, having gotten totally absorbed by this game, that part of the creative motivation uh, hmm. for the folks who created it, uh, Unknown Worlds, yeah. um, was to make a game without combat as a core element hmm. because you know there are all these menacing creatures around but you can't fight them directly you can defend against them in various ways and um yeah so yeah that's why you that can't do a fist is... fight underwater so yeah <laughs> right right <laughs> you can't you can you can um the get the, or, yeah. the tiniest fish uh-huh. um uh with a, a knife that you had but uh, anything else than that it's totally focused away from from fighting and it's totally focused towards like creativity and understanding the ecosystem and the the physical world and hmm. the things that you can create using 
these organic and inorganic resources that you get. And I just think Subnautica is a, is a beautiful game. I'm giving myself uh, a little bit of a, a rest before I play the sequel that they, <laughs> uh, that they brought out more, yeah, more yeah. recently. But yeah, so um, check that out, everyone, if you haven't played Subnautica. More recently, I've been playing a bunch of stuff like Boyfriend Dungeon. Mm-hmm. which I really, really That's like, true, Boyfriend yeah. Dungeons. It's kind of a dungeon crawler meets a dating sim uh, with a whole load of procedural generation elements uh, to it okay. um, by Kit Fox Games. And it's directed by my friend Tanya X. Short, who is a world expert in like procedurally generated content mechanics in games. Okay. Um, yeah, Boyfriend Dungeon, the premise of the game is that you are newly arrived in uh, a city uh, where you haven't lived before, and your cousin starts setting you up on dates <laughs> with people who can magically transform themselves into swords, which you then use in <laughs> dungeon battles, right, right. Um, fighting monsters which are embodiments of your own fears. It's just <laughs> super. Wow, that's, that's deep, yeah. So that's one thing to check out. Another thing is a shout out to uh, another uh, USC Games alumnus, Asher Volmer and his studio, who recently released their game Beast Breakers. And Hmm. Beast Breakers is a delightful um, narrative game about woodland creatures whose community is being invaded by giant crystalline insects. And um, Hmm. the core mechanic is a little bit like Peggle meets uh, um, an RPG. So okay. you defeat the insects whose bodies are kind of spaced out by shooting yourself like a pool cue ball mm-hmm. kind of into the interior spaces of their bodies and then bouncing around, Inside? bouncing off things. It kind of sort of they're, they're, if you imagine that they've got like a main body and then their arms and legs are separate. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of and, and they're all crystalline structures and they have an outer shell which is easy to break and which regenerates and an inner shell, Mm -hmm. which you permanently deplete. So you have to kind of strategize about, it's the kind of game I love about, Mm. it's just like pool, playing pool. You have to calculate the the angle that you're going to hit something Velocity and all that kind of stuff. Bounce off it, right, exactly. And then this has a relationship with the kind of weapons and armor that you have equipped. And um, yeah, so Beast Breakers, um, superb game. Uh, I've been playing it on the on the Switch. One more very recent game that I've barely begun to play mm-hmm. is um, the new game from my friends at Super Brothers, uh, a game called Jet uh, hmm. with two Ts. And this, whew, I just started it this past week. It's um ostensibly like a uh, a flying game okay. where you're piloting a craft with a very cool innovative control system over a landscape mm-hmm. it reminds me a little bit superficially of a game like Zaxxon but you can fly around in any direction um but there's also a first person component which is where the narrative of the game lives mm. and the world building of this game is just extraordinary like super brothers previous game swords and sorcery ep that you might remember yeah, from quite a while. I say ago way, now. yeah, way way back. Well, it's um super stylish, a super fresh take on um sort of huh. science fiction, uh, with a whole load of very interesting cultural stuff going on. So yeah, check it out. Yeah. Jet with two T's yeah, by Super Brothers. And then finally, I have to give a shout out to Ring Fit Adventure. Do you know this game, JP? No, I do not. No, what, oh my what God. platform is it? Switch, Nintendo Switch. Okay. It was a massive smash, surprise smash hit for Nintendo. Hmm. I want to say, um, uh, yeah, two years ago. It came out, gosh, wow. it came out almost two years ago to the day. When you buy Ring Fit Adventure, 
you get this um, peripheral, which is a ring of carbon fiber, maybe, okay. with a steel inner. And the Joy-Con from the Switch slots into the top of the ring and can detect whether you are squeezing it or pulling it. Huh. So it's like a resistance band, you know, yeah, yeah. you would use at the, at the gym. gym. Yeah. And and because of the Joy-Con, it can also, uh, with its inertia sensor, it can detect the attitude in space, whether you're tilting it forwards or back. And then the other Joy-Con goes into a pouch on your leg, and it is a huh. completely charming third-person character action game where you have to jog on the spot, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in your living room or your bedroom yeah. to run through these worlds, hoovering up by stretching and squashing the ring, hoovering up collectibles around you, and then there are enemies on the path, just like in any hmm. JRPG, right? Yeah. And you, and you encounter the enemies, and the way you have to defeat them is by doing aerobic exercises, um, <laughs> upper and lower body workouts, yoga poses, and ring fit adventure. Wow. Gosh, I mean, I got a, a, a little bit fitter over the course of the last couple of years of the lockdown by going hiking, but it's just had this transformative effect on my overall health and well-being. You know, it's uh, sounds, so yeah. That sounds amazing. I, I've never heard of that. I'm, I, check it, check it out, Jake. Yeah, it's I'm going to put this all in my show notes too. Really but good. Yeah, no, that boyfriend dungeon. What was the one? Oh, boyfriend dungeon. Boyfriend dungeon. Yeah, there was way way back in the Turbo Graphics days, there was a tennis game. I think it was called World Court Tennis. It was a straight up tennis uh -huh. game, but then there was an extra mode. And it was an oh, yeah. RPG tennis game. No way. So you would you would go on a quest, and you would um, have to fight, and then you would build up uh, by playing tennis, by beating uh -huh. these different bosses, you would build up your speed or your racket strength and everything. So it was all about uh, wow. an RPG, but it was all based around tennis and, and leveling up these, these different attributes while playing tennis. So it was this kind of quirky, wacky RPG That's tennis game. and super cool. And you get like an inner tube and go from island to island and um, oh, really? counter new <laughs> bosses and have to uh -huh. battle them at tennis. And they were, you know, kept up in the level in, in terms of their abilities and stuff. And then you'd have to figure out how to do resource management and where to put the points. Right, right, stuff. right. Um, That's so, and, what, and this was TurboGrafx. So it was TurboGrafx, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just goes to show, I've always thought that like hybrid genres are where some of the most interesting stuff happens in game design. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, what if you put together this and that? One of my favorite games of all time uh, is Res. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this brilliant game with some of the best music in the history of, of video games, mm -hmm. you know, which is kind of like a rail shooter meets a rhythm game. Uh, and you get something completely fresh and new, and yeah. you know. And I do think that like visual novels as a as a game genre combine really really well with other genres. You know, there's a nice um, narrative element in Beast Breakers um, mm -hmm. that uses a kind of the conventions of the visual novel. I just think, yeah, you can do so much cool and interesting stuff by yeah, just hybridizing genres. Yeah. Yeah, since we touched on it a little bit, like, what about music? Like, I, I saw before we started, uh -huh, you had the uh -huh. guitar in the background. So, like, what's your, mm -hmm. your thoughts about music and game design and how those things kind of intertwine? So I've always loved music since I was a little kid. I, you know, I grew up in a, a house full of music. And, of course, growing up in the UK in the 70s and the 80s, there were plenty of good influences around. Mm -hmm. um, I was very into electronic music from being very young, right. uh, possibly because of my love of Doctor Who and the, the amazing Doctor ah. Who theme tune. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. But then as a teenager, I became 
probably like a post-punk rather than a true punk. You know, I'd also grown up with New Wave and the whole, you know, overlap between New Wave and electronic music was really key, Human League, yeah. um, uh, Depeche Mode. Um, and XTC, actually, oh, I love uh, from really close to me, um, the band XTC are from Swindon, mm-hmm. which is like an hour down the road from Newent, where I grew up. I really love them. Yeah, Andy Parks is, is a genius. and uh, yeah, uh, He really is, JP. I think you're possibly the first games person I've met who loves XTC. We must talk about oh, yeah. this uh, another time. What's your favorite XTC song, do you think? Drums and wires, or uh, oh yeah, yeah, generals and majors. Like, I, like I grew up in that in the mm-hmm. late seventies, early eighties, and I and, and I got in all of it. And then they quit touring, so then you couldn't see them. But um, oh yeah, that's right, they did. Yeah, uh, um, the, I think the Dukes of the me... Stratosphere too, right? Because they they branched off into yeah, the psychedelic yeah, yeah. wave under a pseudonym, right? So that was a really. I actually have a Dukes of Stratosphere single in my front room. Uh, cool. I think Sense is working overtime. Ah. Was there you go. One of mine. Uh, yeah, that's an incredibly atmospheric song. But yeah, mm-hmm. God, that band had so many different incarnations. Yeah. So I brought all of this love of music with me into the game industry, joining in 1991. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, this was a time of a great renaissance in like the British dance music scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, electronic music was uh, starting to make its way into the world of games. I had some like sort of secondary connections to the folks who made Wipeout at Sony Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. That's another key, like Res, that's another key video game soundtrack for me. It was the first time, you know, when like the music that you would dance to in clubs was also in the in the games. Yeah. Just to have this very fresh um, music with this very fresh style of flow-based gameplay as well. Mm-hmm. So I, it's something I kind of wish I'd mentioned earlier when we were talking about what should game designers know about? Because I do think that any, uh, we have a slight tendency, I think, in the world of video game design to get fixated on the video part of video games. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And sometimes we focus on visuals and at the expense of audio. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that really helped me in my career and that ultimately helped me, that, that sort of fed me towards working on a game series like Uncharted was thinking about audio because the audio mm-hmm. was hugely, a hugely important part of the design of Uncharted. And we both had amazing in-house folks and amazing collaborators at, uh, at Sony. Yeah. And of course, our composer, Greg Edmondson, who worked really hard to create create the kind of adaptive audio schemes so that the music would unfold perfectly aligned with what was happening in the gameplay right, at the time. Right. I think all of just my orientation to music and sound design really, really helped me. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it just goes to show you should nurture what's in your heart. I think you should nurture your own passions and interests and see where they lead you in the world of game design. And you, then you can't go wrong. That's, that's great advice. And um, I always think audio is underrated, you know, and it, yeah. it's always kind of pushed at least traditionally it used to be always kind of pushed to the end. And, you yeah, know, yeah. especially back when yeah. you're on cartridges, it's like, yeah, you got, mm-hmm. you know, two megs, knock yourself out. That's all you got, you, you know, and <laughs> is there anything I should ask you about, but didn't. Well, I mean, we've had a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I think that, you know, I can't resist plugging my book uh, a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk more about the book. I'm going to put it in the Uh, show notes too, because I think this audience is going to love it. Well, great. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I perceived when Tracy suggested I write the book of my class Mm -hmm. that there was kind of a gap in the market. There were loads of really great beginner's uh, guide to game design books. And there are a lot of really excellent advanced uh, guides to the various aspects of game development and including, you know, the production uh, books that there are. Yeah. 
for game development out there. They tend to exist at that sort of advanced level there to help people who are already very fixed on becoming producers. And so, mm-hmm. but I thought that there was a sort of gap in the, for a book that bridged that beginner and advanced level. And so that was the kind of book I tried to write, you know, and I tried to keep it very practically focused. Um, yeah. And the book is actually structured in uh, the four project phases that we use at USC, starting with an ideation phase where you work out roughly what your goal is for the kind of experience that you want to make. Mm-hmm. But you don't do it by thinking a load. You do do some brainstorms and stuff, but you do it mainly by prototyping to you yeah. know build some things and test them out on people to see what kinds of ideas are working. Mm-hmm. And then the pre-production phase, which is, again, when we design our game, not by doing too much thinking, but by creating a vertical slice, by creating like a good playable demo of our game, right. along with a game design macro. And then that kind of, those two things give you what you need to know to schedule the full production phase of the project. Mm-hmm. Which is when we finish building out of the game, passing through the alpha milestone on the way to the beta milestone. When the game is finally done, and then you have the post-production phase, right? Mm-hmm. Where your game is finished, but now you've set aside some time to polish it and to solve design problems and fix bugs. Yeah. So it's um, you know, it's kind of a um a recipe for better games with less crunch in that way. And it mm-hmm. also as, alongside the game design macro, I tried to shed some light on some really useful but maybe lesser known concepts, um, like the idea of concentric development which is an approach to building games where you make sure that you finish everything that you work on to a good level of polish before you move on to the next thing. And I think this Uh, is the way that a lot of more experienced game developers intuitively know how to work. But mm -hmm. hopefully in the chapter that I have on it in the book, it'll help people transmit that knowledge around their teams a a little more easily. Mm -hmm. So where can people um, find you online? You know, the website, Twitter, all that kind of stuff. Well, so back at Microprose, when I was asked what I wanted my email address to be, mm-hmm. um, uh, a lot of people back then called me Rich. Uh, my family called me Rich. Mm-hmm. And um, I've always loved the symbol under- of the underscore. And I actually, yeah. <laughs> this is going to sound a bit dorky, but I actually thought there was a kind of self-effacing joke uh, in the idea of a game designer underscoring, not scoring many points. And and actually, you know, I was talking about Mark Cerny earlier. One day, Mark Cerny said, you know, Richard, one of my skills, I hope I'm not telling tales out of class here. Mark said, one of my skills as a game designer is that I'm not very good at games. And I don't try very hard. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, Mark, that's me too. Uh, yeah. And I do think that that's a pretty good attitude to have if you want to design games that appeal to a broad base of players in the way that Naughty Dog have always aspired to do. Mm-hmm. And I also like the Russian science fiction author Stanislav Lem, uh, author of Solaris, made into a famous movie by Tarkovsky. So okay. this is a very, very long-winded way of saying, JP, that <laughs> people can find me at rich underscore Lem. I'm on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram there as well. Those are my two main places where I hang out. And I would love to hear from folks uh, who have uh, listened to the podcast. Cool. No, that's great. I'll, I'll put all that in show notes. And, you know, last question, like what's one piece of advice you give others working in the industry right now? I don't know. This is, there are many different answers I could give to this question, but the one that mm-hmm. pops into my mind is that I think that the very best games come from a mixture of high quality collaboration where we've assembled a team of people with complementary skills mm-hmm. and that we can speak each other's language 
and that we can get along with each other uh, really well yep. so that we enjoy the work and we want to keep working together over time. But I think that as well as uh, high capacity to collaborate, it's also good uh, on a game team if there's some, and I'm not sure if tension is the right word for it, okay. but if there's some differing points of view that can find expression. Because I think that mm. it's people being willing to challenge each other's ideas to not accept the first or second idea that comes along, but to push through right. to the third or fourth idea where the excellence really emerges. Mm -hmm. And in my classes, when we're talking about communication and collaboration, I like to talk about conflict. Mm -hmm. And there's this uh, amazing book called uh, The Big Book of Conflict Resolution Games uh, hmm. by Mary Scannell, who is like a, a management consultant. And right on the first page, this book starts talking about the fact that we're entrained to think of conflict as a bad thing to be avoided right, at all costs. Right. And of course, there are certain kinds of conflict that are necessarily very bad. You know, anything toxic, anything yeah. uh, angry where people are shouting at each other uh, or abusing each other yeah, in other ways. Yeah, 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 yeah. That kind of conflict is totally not okay. But conflict can have a more positive connotation. It can just mean that you and I have a difference of opinion. Mm -hmm. And in actual fact, one of the most difficult forms of conflict is conflict that goes unacknowledged and unrecognized mm. and undiscussed. Because that's the kind of conflict that brews under the surface right, and then right. eventually further down Blows the line up, can yeah. blow up. Right. So I think that we have to have the courage to acknowledge that conflict isn't bad in and of itself, and it can be very productive mm -hmm. if you can find ways to work through it. Um, yeah. yeah, this is something to bear in mind when we're thinking about how to hold the tension between great style collaboration and having the ability to challenge each other and to push each other through to, to excellence. That's great advice. And yeah, you're right. Often when you push a little deeper, that's where the gold is, right? Not the first idea, yeah. but the third or the fourth one and pushing yeah. a little bit in ways that are acceptable, right? Like you're not banging right. shoes on tables or anything like that. No, right, yeah. right. But just, just being willing to speak to each other empathetically mm -hmm. and to um, having the willingness also to have our own ideas looked at and inspected to not get defensive, right? Yeah. And to keep an open mind. This is something that I've learned from all of the amazing people that I've worked with down the years. Wow. It's been a great discussion, Rich. Um, I'm going to have a ton of excellent show notes uh, to put in here with links and all that kind of stuff. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I have too, JP. Thank you so much for having me on. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for all your excellent questions. And I really love the show. It's a great honor to be on. So thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the feedback. It's uh, started as just a lark and... Um... Here it is two and a half years later. So, you know. <laughs> well, there you go. When you're just playing, then amazing stuff emerges. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, well, I did start that. Oh, I'm on episode 44 now, which, you know, it's it's not one a week. Uh, sorry about that, folks. I, I have a <laughs> day job and, and family and other stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I get it out on, on the schedule ish. And um, I'm, yeah, I'm glad yeah. to have people like yourself on and, and share these journeys uh, in your story. So, yeah, cool. I'm really great. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. Go to the website at gamedevadvice.com and you can find the show notes along with show notes for all the other episodes. Please also check out the new Patreon page at patreon.com backslash game 
dev advice. Have a lot of options up there for how you can support the show. Again, that's patreon.com backslash game dev advice. Thanks again for listening and being part of the show. Take care. Bye-bye. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite.